Are y'all ready for week two of our series? A couple of you. I'll, t- I'll take what I can get. I can take what I can get. Hey, is, is that a Georgia Bulldog sweater? Charles, I'm looking at you. Now I'm just confused, man. So, <laughs> so <laughs> hey, uh, anybody from my era remember the sitcom Family Ties? Come on, come on. That that, that was a, an era when uh, sitcoms, for the most part, were very family friendly. You could sit down and watch them with it with your family, and I'll have to explain some things. Not like it is today or church today. So, where have you come in anyway? Uh, but Family Ties, it made its debut in um, September 22nd of, ni- of 82. Ran for seven seasons. Uh, you had uh, the star of the show was this staunch conservative, uh, Alex P. Keaton, played by. Come on, Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. He was raised, he was being raised by these two very liberal hippie parents. Uh, He had two siblings. He had Mallory, which uh, was very into herself. She would have probably been a fan of the Kardashians if it happened then, uh, today. Uh, Then you had the tomboy uh, that was Jennifer. And most of the humor in this sitcom focused around uh, the differences in the two, and the clashes of these two generations. You have the 80s generation that was class, clashing with the 60s and said, no, we, we, we reject your style, what you're living for, and, and that counterculture. And if you know anything about sitcoms, here's the thing about sitcoms. There's always drama, right? Throw a little drama. There's some humor. But at the end of that 30 minutes, everything's back to being good. Everything's back to being great. You In that 30 minutes, you had laughter, you had drama, you had problems, that, but then those problems were solved, and at the end of it, everybody was happy. Wouldn't it be great if real life was like that? Come on, I would even take 24 hours. 24 hours, give me a little drama, give me a little laughter, but at the end of that 24 hours, hey, everybody's back to good. But man, the more you live, you understand that it's not, there is no perfect family. We look at these sitcom families and we say, man, that's the perfect family. And that's what we strive for. We want these perfect families and perfect Christmas dinners. But more than likely, here's what family dinners like at your house. This looks fantastic, Mrs. Johnson. Yeah, it almost looks as good as Mom's. Stephanie, Carol worked extremely hard on this. Oh, this is... I just threw together a simple recipe. This is almost perfect. If only Kyle could have made it home for Christmas this year. Merry Christmas, Dad. Kyle, what a Christmas miracle. Anything for you, Dad. Can we go a different route or something? Why are you even going down the street? This street is terrible this time of day. Can you double time it? Can we just get a little faster, man? I'm kind of late for a flight right now. Literally 15 minutes, I'm stressing out. Have you ever tried to check through security during the holidays? It's just freaking nuts. Can you turn up the AC?
can't bring up the Asian thing. What Asian thing? Can't I say Asian in my own home? So James, um, I, I had some Thai food the other day. It was to tie for. Uh, <laughs> 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 my dad, he, he's not a racist, but he might tell like a bad joke or two. Wait, what? Don't worry about it, just ignore him. Dad, no! I'm Chinese. I do love Thai food. Yeah. And we like Chinese food, too. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Maybe you could cook some for us. Okay, Carol, we're done. Don't they all cook? I'm sure Chinese people cook. He's Chinese. I think he doesn't know. I don't know much about him. I just met him also, so. Alrighty then. We normally do Christmas presents after dinner, but I just can't help myself. Oh, the new G Phone 6 7 S. Oh my gosh, thank you so much, Daddy. How'd you get this? They're sold out everywhere. A magician never reveals his secrets. I saw it first. Well, anything for my kids. Oh, oh, oh. That's Santa, everybody. It's nuts. Your brother, the big disappointments, Greg. Johnny, look, I know this has been a hard year for you with the divorce and everything, but I think for Christmas, we're just gonna do our family. I hope you understand. Oh yeah, Merry Christmas. Nobody loves Johnny. But everyone loves Santa. I'm just saying we should give Trump a chance. Okay, I think it's time to take our family Christmas picture. Great idea. Yeah. yeah. The family's all here. James, get in the picture. No, no, I don't think James should be in the picture. Daddy, that's not fair. It is fair. This is a family picture. James is not family. Oh my God, that's so rude. Well, I'm not family yet. I was hoping to change that tonight. Oh, God. Steph, will you marry me? <laughs> Absolutely not. Hey! What do you think you're doing? You hardly know him. You barely knew Carol when you married her. storybook Christmas family, you know, we see the perfect mom, the perfect dad, the perfect kids. Uh, come on, parents, you've tried, well, they, uh, Sheridan and Bo took uh, Sonny and, and Juno to get pictures took with Santa. Hey, we got Sonny here who loved it, but of course Sonny loves everything and everybody. Juno wanted no part with Santa, you know, in fact, she may get cold for the way she treated Santa this year. But you ever tried, but we want that perfect environment, uh, the perfect husband, the perfect uh, wife, a little pink house is for you and me. No John Cougar fans. <laughs> Golly, I forgot I'm talking to the Holy Church. Uh, the kind of, but we want that kind of life where it says at the end of it, and they lived happily ever after. 
But as you get older, as you live a little bit in this life, you begin to realize those stories are just that, stories. They're stories. There, there are things that only happen in books or things that happen in movies. And, and you discover family can be very complicated, amen? And, and every family does have that Uncle Eddie. Every family does. And, and if you don't know who the Uncle Eddie is in your family, you're that Uncle Eddie. You're the one that nobody talks about that you, oh, I must have lost my invitation. Uh, but, but, but when you look at your family, here's the thing. The original Christmas story is no different when you look at the family tree of Jesus than ours. See, when you look at the family tree of Jesus and his family ties, you discover, hey, that tree was just as crooked as ours. And in some aspects, even crookeder. Crookeder, is that a word, babe? More crooked, more crooked. My wife, I, I threatened to buy her this shirt that says, I'm silently judging your grammar. Um, because she is, she is. Uh, but in our minds, we've had this picture painted of what the perfect Christmas does look like. That the, we've got the manger. We've got uh, Mary and Joseph. We've got the shepherds. We've got the magi. We do have the eight-pound, six-ounce little infant baby Jesus that Casey stole from me earlier because he heard my first message. Uh, we've got a couple of sheep. And that's the picture when we think of the original Christmas story. That's in our heads. But when you read and you understand what fully happened in the Christmas story, the original, when you look at Jesus' family trees, there are some members in Jesus' family, his lineage, that would make Uncle Eddie look like a saint. And we're going to look at some of those. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. I'm going to bring back real Bible, you know, where you have to, I'm going to start bringing mine in here and just lay it out and then walk around. No, I'm not, uh, because my, my text is really big, and I have to have it that way. Uh, but hey, let me ask you, how many uh, like a, you like to read? Anybody like to read? I, I do. I like a good book. Uh, in fact, anybody like me, I've got about five or six that I've started, you know, I've, and I'll come back, yeah, come back and do it. Here's the thing about a book, though. Uh, if it doesn't have a good introduction if it, in that first chapter, it doesn't capture my attention, I'm on to the next. Come on, anybody else? I'm that way with music. I love music. In fact, I, I, I'm probably the only one that does this in here except for maybe my brother Casey. Every Friday morning, here's my ritual. I get up, I do my devotion, pray, uh, I'll get me a cup of coffee. I sit down, open iTunes, and look at New Music Friday. And I'll go through one of the new releases today. And I'll go, oh, this looks interesting. My, my kids say, how did you find this artist? Well, that's what I do Friday mornings. Uh, and I'll go through it and I'll say, but if that first song doesn't capture my attention, I'm on the next. So if you're writing, knowing that, when you, if we're being honest, when you open up Matthew chapter 1 and he opens his book the way he does, you're thinking... I'm just going to skip over this chapter. Come on. Anybody be honest enough to say you did a yearly Bible reading plan and it got to Matthew 1 and you started hearing the so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so and you're like, uh, 
I'm, I don't even know what begat means. Let's move on to the next one. Come on. I'll be honest. I've done it. I've done it. But when you look at what Matthew was trying to portray to us, because if you're not familiar with it, it is the genealogy of Jesus. And it is so-and-so begat so-and-so. And, and, but in Matthew 1, the first 17 verses alone give us 47 different names in Jesus' genealogy. Now, I'm not going to read all 17 verses to you, uh, but what I am going to do is ask Jacob to come up and read those verses for you. No, I'm not going to do that, Jacob. So, uh, Jacob doesn't know. He says, hey, I'm ready. I'm, I'm going. Uh, but, but we are going to look at some of the key verses because I want you to understand and see how we've been led to believe this Christmas story, this perfect Christmas family is not necessarily true, and there's a reason behind it. So Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the NIV today. Um, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, or I, uh, Abraham begat Isaac. Uh, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, Tamar is one of five women that gets mentioned in Jesus' genealogy here. Verse 5, Salmon, uh, Salmon and the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, another one of the women. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, another one. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. There, uh, there are another woman that gets mentioned in here, but you've got Rahab, you've got Ruth, uh, you've got uh, Tamar, and you've got Uriah's wife. Uh, and jump down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And that rounds out the five women that get mentioned in those 47 names. Uh, verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. I've been tempted to write a book. In fact, I've had the title to the book I want to write for years, and Denise will tell you this. The, my, my, the title of this book that I want to write is called Glued, Screwed, and Tattooed, Welcome to the Ministry. Uh, the, I, seriously, I've got it all laid out. I just need to write it. But if I'm going to write the book, I want to open up with something that just draws you in, that, that makes you, you don't want to put the book down. You know, anybody know what I mean? It, it just brings you in. A, a good book opens up with something like, once upon a time in a land far, far away. That's like, what happened in a land far, far away? I want to know what happened. You don't open up with Abraham begat Joseph. So-and-so begat so -and -so. I'm like, I, who do I care? Why do I care who begat who? So, so why does Matthew open up his book with something that people are tempted to skip over. Here's why. Because Matthew is setting the stage for Jesus. And he wants the readers, those listening on, and the readers today to know, hey, Jesus was in fact a real 
person. He wasn't just a fairy tale. He wasn't just a story. I'm about to lay out the genealogy and let you know where these are historical facts. He is real. He really did live. And he's, he's letting us know that. So Kelly, why does it matter? Because when you look at the gospel and you, when you look at Christmas and what the gospel and Christmas represent, if you're taking notes, you need to understand this one truth about the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's good news. The gospel is good news. Here's the problem with our, our society and our culture and even in the church. We think Jesus just came with a bunch of good advice. Come on. He had a lot of good things to say. But the gospel is the good news. Not good advice. Well, what's the difference? Here's the difference. Advice is counsel about what you need to do. News is a report about what's already been done. Advice instructs you on how to make it happen, make something happen. News tell you, tells you it's already happened. Advice says it's up to you. It's in your hands. News says it's already been done for you in history. The game changer was someone came and has already done it. That's the difference between good advice and good news. And can we be honest? This world doesn't need any more good advice. It doesn't listen to it anyway. You know what, this, I didn't say this in 9 a.m., but I'm just going to throw this out there if you ever call me or Denise for counseling. You know what frustrates me most when I counsel someone? Them listen, oh, man, that's good, that's good. Then go out and do exactly the opposite of what we talked about. And then they show up a week later wondering why their life is so screwed up. Is that a little too real? Like, my, my wife's saying, no, but in her heart, she said, yeah, move on, move on. Because we don't need good advice. We need good news. Somebody said, okay, Kelly, good news, good advice. Come on, what's the difference? Let me, let me give you an example. Anybody watch the movie Unbroken? Anybody see that movie? Great movie. And I'm, I'll tell you what the story, if you've not saw it, it tells the story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. Louis was born in, it's a true story, in January 26, 1917, in New York in 1919, his family moved to Torrance, California, where he attended Torrance High School. Louis was bullied, and so his dad taught Louis how to fight. And so Louis got really good at fighting to the point where it began to get him in trouble. So his older brother stepped in and says, listen, let's find you another hobby besides fighting. And he got him involved on the track team. And, 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 got him, and at the end of the freshman year, Louis had fin finished fifth in the all-city division. In 1934, he set an interscholastic record for running the mile in four minutes and 21 seconds. And I know today that's nothing but back then. They didn't think, ever think a four-minute mile could be broken, ever. But his running got him a scholarship to the University of Southern California in 1936. He tried out for the Olympics, and he made it. He competed in the 5,000-meter distance event. In 1938, he set a new collegiate record for the mile with four minutes and two seconds. Well, in 1941, Louis enlisted in the United States Army. In September that same year, he was promoted to second lieutenant. 
He was deployed as a bombardier on the B-24 Liberator uh, bomber Superman. In April 43, during a mission against the Japanese, his plane went down in the ocean, killing eight of the 11 people on board. Louis was one of the three survivors. On their 47th day of being adrift at the ocean, they were captured by the Japanese Navy. These three men were then held and beaten, mistreated, abused. They were moved from one POW camp to another. He, he was tormented. This one prison guard, uh, I'm not even going to say his real name, but his nickname was The Bird. In fact, he was, so, uh, he was such an evil guy that General MacArthur included him in his list of the four most wanted war criminals in Japan. Louis remained a POW until the war ended in August of 1945. He endured two years of abuse, two years of being mistreated, being beaten, two years of waking up not knowing if this was going to be his last day alive, if they were going to kill him. So when the war was declared over and that America had won, can I tell you the last thing that Louis needed was advice on what to do? He didn't need advice on how to survive or get through another day. What he needed was the good news that the war was over. What he needed was the good news that someone bigger and stronger came in and defeated the enemy. And because of that, he was now a free man. He didn't need advice. He needed the good news. Are you with me now? Good news. The gospel isn't good advice. It's good news. It's good news. I mean, come on, the God. Sadly, we, we, we just give good advice about how to get through to life and how to win the fight against temptation, good advice about how to win the war for your life, for your family. But the good news is, hey, the battle's already been won. The war has already been won. That someone bigger, stronger stepped in and defeated the enemy, and you no longer have to live your life as a prisoner of war. You're free. You can go free. What does that have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas. And the reason we celebrate Christmas. See, many Christians, when they talk about Christmas, when they talk about the gospel, really all they're doing is giving good advice to people. Advice on, hey, hey, here's what you need to do. Pray more. Read, study your Bible more. Those are great things. But that's the advice we give. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Try harder. Come on. Try harder. Just, just put yourself in it. Keep all the rules. Check off all the boxes. Perform really, really well. A lot of good news. But can I tell you, that's not the gospel. It's not what Christmas is all about. The gospel and the Christmas story puts this message on display. Jesus was born out in the cold. Jesus was born in a stable. He was born in some of the worst conditions you would ever want as a mom want to bring a baby into. Jesus left his rightful place in heaven, put on flesh and bone to, 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 to come and rescue and save us. And here's what it comes down to this Christmas and this year. Do you believe the good news? Do you believe it? Or was Jesus just a good teacher with some really good advice? That's what you got to determine. 
It, it, it comes down to this. The question that you must answer at some point in your life, every person in this room, is it, do you believe Jesus came to earth? Do you believe that he willingly laid down his life? Do you believe he took the punishment, the death that you and I deserve? Do you believe he died for our sins? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe the good news of the Bible or is the Bible, is the gospel just a lot of good advice? Think about it. When Jesus was born, and the angel showed up in the field to the shepherds. The angel didn't say, hey, I'm bringing you some good news. Some good. Someone's been born that can tell you and give you some really good advice on how to live. Someone's been born that can just kind of help you, motivate you. A great motivational speaker has been born. A great TED talker has been born. No, the angel showed up and said, hey, good news. The Messiah, the Savior of the world has been born. The world, the world then and the world now didn't need just a good teacher. We've got a lot of good teachers in this world. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There's been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years, and a bit more makes no difference. The world doesn't need any more good advice. It needs good news, good news that there is hope. Come on, how many knows the world needs the news? There is hope today. It needs the good news that there's a different way you can live. The good news that you can be set free from your addiction, from your sin. Good news that you are loved more than you could possibly imagine. Good news that God is not mad at you. God is not out to get you. He's not waiting for you to mess up. No, that God loves you right where you are. That's the good news the world needs. The gospel is good news. The second thing you need to know is this. Grace covers it all. I don't know about you. That excites me. See, that's why Matthew opens up with the genealogy of Jesus. That's why he shows us the family ties of Jesus. It's why it's important. See, in these days, especially your family tree, your genealogy, that was a way of you proving your qualifications. If it told who you were, it was an announcement of yourself. It was like a reference letter or a resume that you would hand out. Hey, this resume, this tells you everything you need to know. Now, let's be honest. Anybody ever lied on the resume? Some of y'all, yeah, thank you for your honesty. Anybody ever padded their resume? Come on. Anybody ever left anything off that resume that you didn't want a few possibly? Yeah, yeah, oh, we're getting more and more. I'm afraid to get any more honest. Um, anybody murder somebody and let them? No, I'm joking. That's what they would do in this time. They would pad their genealogy, and they would leave people out that they didn't want People knowing they were connected to our family. Uh, like you, They didn't include drunk uncle from Saturday Night Live on their resume or their genealogy. They included people that would make them look good, people that would make them right. And they would intentionally leave out parts that, that, that didn't make them look that good. Matthew, though, he does exactly the opposite. It's like... I want you to know how messed up Jesus' family tree is. 
I want you to know how jagged that tree is. I want you to, in fact, one of the things he did that was a big no-no during this day, he included women in the genealogy. See, back then, women had no status. They were gender outsiders. So there was no need to include them in the genealogy. But Matthew doesn't just put one woman in there. He puts five. What was he doing? Matthew was including the gender outsiders, the people that felt like they were less than, people that felt like they were just property, they didn't measure up. But then Matthew doesn't only do that, he includes Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites. These are all races that the Jewish people hated. They were racial outsiders. And Matthew includes them. Well, not only does that, he, 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 he goes to another level and he begins to include these moral outsiders, these people that have. It seemed when you look at their life, they had no morals in their life. And it's easy to say, Matthew, what are you thinking? Because it's like you're going out of the way to describe and connect Jesus to some of the worst of the worst people. Let me show you, let me show you what I mean. Verse 3, look at verse 3 again in Matthew 1. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose name was Tamar. Now, I need you to help me. I'm going to read that line again. When I say that line, I want you to gasp like oh, loudly. Loud, you know, a loud gasp. In fact, uh, Casey and Gina Lund had a competition on who could gasp the loudest in the first service. For a second, I thought I was going to have to give one of them mouth-to-mouth recitation, and I was hoping it was neither one. But let's move on. <laughs> so, let's try. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I like it. That's what those reading and listening to this would have done. Why? Because they knew the name Tamar. They knew who she was. And if you don't know who Tamar was, let me give you the cliff notes. And I'm just going to tell you, you read her full story, it's rated R. Those of you that think the Bible is PG or G, oh, no. But here's what Tamar did. She dressed up like a prostitute, stood up at city gates so she could seduce her father-in-law so that she could get pregnant by him. And Matthew's including her in Jesus' genealogy? Man, that's not, you, you don't put that in public records, especially for the Messiah. But jump down to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, who's, y'all ready? Whose mother was Rahab. Well, y'all are good at this. Why would they gasp? Because they knew who Rahab was. Rahab was an actual prostitute. She didn't play one on TV. She was one. She was an actual prostitute. It's not something you won't put out there that is in your family line, much less if you're going to be, the rab be a rabbi or a, uh, the long-awaited Messiah. But Matthew puts it all out there for everyone to see. Hey, she's part of Jesus' family tree. Then finally, we get down to verse 6, and Matthew brings up King David. And the people had to be thinking, oh, finally. Enough of those seedy characters. King David's their hero. King David, he's a giant slayer. He's the one that 
they say was a man after God's own heart. But Matthew doesn't highlight any of those things. In fact, Matthew goes out of his way to highlight something else. Verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father, y'all ready? Father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Y'all are really good. We need to make sure we get those ambient mics in here so they can hear that on. Because if you're not online, well, they're killing their ahs. Um, some of them are doing that better than they worship. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's go. Oh, that was, that was good. That made me feel good anyway. So here's the thing. They knew who they, Matthew was talking about. He didn't have to say her name. Your eyes wife. He had been your eyes wife. Who was she? Bathsheba. Matthew's not trying to throw shade at Bathsheba. He's not trying to make her look less than, but what he's doing is, is you need, it's a must that you understand the full uh, scope of this story and what's going on. So he says, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Let me tell you who Uriah was. Uriah was one of David's best friends. Uriah was one of David's most loyal warriors and fighters. In fact, when, when he was being chased and uh, King, King Saul was trying to kill him, Uriah was one of those, the Bible says, was one of David's mighty men. Uriah laid his life on the line for David on several occasions. But after King Saul had died and Uriah and King, King David had been placed there in the throne, several years have gone by. Uriah's off, he's deployed at war, he's out fighting, and David, who the king should have been out there, but he decides to take a day off. And while he's up walking around the top of the castle, he looks down and sees a naked woman bathing. And David decides, hmm, I think I'll swipe right. I had to Google. I, I seriously, I thought, man, I hope my wife and she looks at my Google searches. I was like, which way do you swipe for like or don't like? Right or left? Right if you like them. Left, sick them on side, pass on by. Uh, and he said, man, just, and, and there was that. So he sends a messenger. He says, hey, go find out who she is. So his messenger goes over there. Gets her, man, he comes back. And, and, and the, the, when you read the Bible, the messenger comes back and he's, he's trying to deliver this important message. He's like, king, king, swipe left, swipe left. I'm just telling you, do not go there. I'm tell, her name is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Iliam, but King David, she's also the wife of your best friend and most loyal warrior, Uriah. Don't do this. Don't do this, David. Whatever you got to do, take a cold shower, go take a walk around, but do not do this. But David, the giant killer, the hero, the man after God's own heart, he decides he wants to do his own thing and go his own way. Anybody relate? And so he brings Uriah's wife to his, the palace, has sex with her. She ends up getting pregnant. 
And so David now is trying to figure out how to cover up the mess he's created. And I'm going to tell you how loyal Uriah was and how good of a friend he was. He calls, he says, bring Uriah back for a couple days. He says, hey, man, you've been fighting so hard. You've been such a loyal warrior to me. I want you to take a couple days off. Go home, be with your wife. Enjoy your wife. What he's hoping is Uriah is going to go back, have sex with his wife, and bam, think it's his baby. Uriah is so loyal. When David wakes up the next morning, he finds Uriah at the door of the castle. saying, I can't. With what I know is going on out there, my brothers in arms and who I'm fighting for, I can't. He even tries to get Uriah drunk. But even drunk, Uriah's like, I'm loyal to the king. I'm loyal. So David says, okay, I don't know what else to do. So he hands him a note says, here, give this to, to, to the commander. And what the note says was put Uriah on the front line where the battle is the fiercest. And when it really gets bad, I want you to pull everybody back but him. Conspiring to murder his best friend. All to cover up his mess. So when Matthew lays this out, says David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, that's the story he wants us to remember. He said this is important. See, in those 17 verses, Matthew just lays it all out there. He's like, you want to know Jesus' family ties? You want to know the genealogy, where this Messiah of ours comes from? Here it is. Why would he do that? Why would he connect Jesus with Rahab, a known prostitute? Why would he connect Jesus to Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law? Why would he connect him to Ruth, who wasn't even a Jew? She was a Moabite. And why would he connect Jesus to Bathsheba, an adulterous woman? Let's be honest. When you look at this, it looks more like the latest issue of Busted that you find up here at the store than it does the genealogy of a king. Come on. I've seen some of y'all's pictures on that. At least smile when they take it. And I was, but why would Matthew do such a thing? Because he wanted those reading, those that would be listening to this story 2,000 years later, he wanted us to know and understand this. The power of God's grace covers it all. That God's grace is stronger than adultery. That God's grace is stronger than incest. That God's grace is stronger than prostitution. It's stronger than any gender barriers, any racial barriers, any cultural barriers, any moral bar barriers. God's grace is stronger and bigger than anything. Come on, guys. Matthew knew that the majority of the people that he listed here, here's, they were rejected and, and put out by the law. The law said, no, you cannot be part of us. You cannot be in the presence of God. They have been excluded. The law kept these kind of people out. And Matthew is trying desperately to relate to us why the law kept these kind of people out. The genealogy of Jesus shows us grace welcomes them in. Matthew is wanting us to know, guys, 
It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter how much or how little you've accomplished. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional or messed up your family tree may be. The grace of Jesus covers all. All. What's good about that is because of that, people like you and I, we get a seat at the king's table. For one time, we would have had to sit at the door begging for crumbs. Now we sit at the king's table. I'm telling you, the grace of God and the relentless love of Jesus can reach further than you can possibly imagine. The third truth that some of you really, all of us, but really need to get into this. Jesus came to set you free. He came to set you free. Guys, and that's not good advice. That's good news. Yeah, I just saw you back there, man. Good to see anybody. Good news. I've got good news for you today. Let's close this out. Verse 17, some of y'all were wondering why that verse was even in there. There were 14 generations from Abraham to David. There were another 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile. And yet another 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. I know you're, what, what does that even mean? See, the people listening and reading what Matthew wrote, they, they were very versed in the Old Testament. They knew it. So, so Matthew here, he's abbreviating these generations, and he's about to make a very important theological point. And he lays out these three sets of 14, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. He's laying out these three sets of 14. Now, I know this is not new math, so go back to old school math with me. Three sets of 14 is also equivalent to six sets of seven. Is that right? Some of y'all don't know, didn't know it would be tested. Uh, it is. Trust me. And Matthew wants those listening to understand and recognize this, that, that Jesus is the seventh son. Why is that important? But here's what, by the seven in the Bible is a significant number. It was a number of completion. It was a number of rest and release. Remember what God did on the seventh day after creating? What did he do? He rested. The seventh day was meant for rest. And every seventh day was supposed to be a day you devote to God, dedicate to God, called the Sabbath day. To take it even a step further, in the Bible days, every seventh year was a Sabbath year, which means the land rested. You didn't sow anything on the land. It rested. And then to top it off, Every 49 years, that's seven times seven, kids, you're having a heart. Every 49 years, the really big thing happened. Check it out, Leviticus 25, verse 8. He says, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, for it shall be the year of jubilee. 
Why does that excite me? Because the year of Jubilee meant this. If you had any debts, they were canceled. Anybody wish we had a year of Jubilee now? If, if you were a slave, year of Jubilee, you were set free. If you lost land throughout those years that belonged to your family, year of Jubilee, you got it back. It was all returned to you. Jubilee was a celebration of what had been, what was lost had now been restored and there was freedom and there was liberty. So when Matthew writes that Jesus is the seventh son, he said, hey guys, Jesus is your year of Jubilee. Jesus is the one that cancels all debts that you owe. He's the one that restores what the enemy stolen from you and he sets people free. Come on now. Well, when you look at Jesus and Luke, when he comes out of the wilderness after 40 days of fasting and being tempted by the devil, he walks straight into the synagogue. Religious teachers there, they hand him a scroll. And it is no coincidence that he opens the scroll and begins to read this passage. And Jesus begins to proclaim, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He has sent me to for the recovery of sight to the blind and set the oppressed free. That sounds like a year of jubilee to me. He says, He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and dropped the mic. No, no, you didn't do that. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He said to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, you don't have to wait 49 years for freedom anymore. In other words, you don't have to wait 49 years for your debts to be canceled. canceled. You don't have to wait 49 years to restore. Today, I have come to set the prisoner free. I have come to right the wrongs, and I have come to restore what the enemy has stolen. The gospel, guys, is the good news of restoration, of freedom. If I can get Bob to come on up, and I'll close with this. Anybody remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Anybody familiar with it? I remember when I was learning to play piano, uh, the, the score for this was one of those that you wanted to learn. In fact, when I told Bob, I said, I said come up when I start talking about Chariots of Fire. He says, do you want me to play Chariots of Fire? I said, please, no, don't do that. But it came out in 1981. It was based on the true story of these two British runners. One of the British runners, a guy by the name of Harold Abrams, says this at one point in the movie. When I run the 100-yard dash, I run because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify the meaning of my existence. I wonder how many of us, that's us every morning. The alarm clock goes off. And I'm like, I've got so many hours to prove my worth, 
So many hours to prove that there's a reason why I'm alive. So many hours to prove that this is why I'm alive and I exist. And so what we do, we work harder and longer hours. We put in all the work at school. You you put your kids in every sport trying to promote them and put them along. You post selfies to social media. You make TikTok videos. And can I tell you what all social media is? It's people trying to prove who they are and their worth. That's what social media is. That's why you're consumed with how many likes you got on this. How many followers you got. Because you spend your time trying to prove your worth. The other writer, Eric Liddell, he says something that just really sticks to me. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's the way I want to start this day. God made me fast. God made me be able to do these certain things with my hands that I'm good at. God made me good at teaching at school. God made me good at flipping hamburgers. God made me good at running a multi-million dollar business. God, so, and when I do that, I feel God's pleasure. It's not a matter of where you work. How much money you make, how, how, how popular you are, is do you know that what you're doing, you feel God's pleasure in it? You know what the, you see the difference in the two runners. One runner tries to prove who he is. I've got to do this. I've got to post this. I've got to work harder. I've got to try harder to justify my existence. But the other runner, Eric, he runs because he knows who he is. He doesn't wake up with the pressure. Oh, man, I hope I get enough done today. I've got to get, I've got to get this done to prove who I am. He wakes up and begins the life has for him with this, I know who I am. I know who I am. See, the thing is, guys, people will try to change you. I told this at 9 a.m. I sat down. This has been a year, a couple years ago. With this guy that began to tell me everything he didn't like about my preaching. Didn't like that I told jokes when I preached. Didn't like that I made light of some things. Didn't like that I did this. And I looked at him and said, you know what? I honestly don't know any other way to be. This is who I am. This is who God made me to be. Do I tell some off-color things? Yes, and my wife lets me know. That's why God gave me her. This is who I am. I know who I am. But can I tell you, there are some Sundays, there's some days in my life that I get up here in this pulpit and I feel like I'm trying to prove who I am. And some of y'all know the feeling. You go to work. You're in that marriage trying to prove your exist why you're worth existing. truth is this, every day we wake up guys, we have those two different choices. We can run this race trying to prove our worth to others or we can run because hey, we know who we are. Stand with me, bro.